The story of Dracula is one that has been told and retold many times throughout the years. Some remain fairly true to the original, whereas others attempt to place their own unique spin on the story to varying levels of success. And then we have those where, well, the less we say the better. I guess it's time to finally delve into the story that created one of fiction's most infamous characters. The work of Bram Stoker is one of the most well-known examples of early gothic horror, a genre that inspired so many writers. Dracula was written by Bram Stoker in the 1890s and eventually published in 1897. The narrative consists of a series of letters, journal entries and newspaper articles. There is no singular protagonist, however its characters have truly stood the test of time, and the novel itself is considered to be one of the most famous pieces of English literature. So join me today as we cover a true horror classic in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 3rd May. The story begins with Jonathan Harker, a newly qualified solicitor travelling from London to meet a mysterious new client. He travels via train and passes through Munich, Budapest and Vienna before arriving on the eastern outskirts of a country he refers to as Transylvania. He arrives in a town known as Bistritz, high up in the Misty Mountains. Harker describes this as one of the wildest and least known parts of Europe. One would be hard-pressed to find its location on a map of any kind. The mysterious client he waits for is a nobleman known as Count Dracula, who has expressed interest in purchasing a house near London. The Count instructed Harker to wait for him at the Golden Hotel, a rather old-fashioned looking building. At the door he was greeted by an elderly woman who gave him a letter from Count Dracula. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgio Pass my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. The letter welcomes Harker and instructs him to sleep well, as the following day at three a coach will arrive to take him to Bukovina, where he will find the Count's private carriage at the Borgio Pass. 4th of May. Harker departed that following day, and once in the Borgio Pass he noticed a carriage pull up beside the coach being drawn by black horses. The carriage was being driven by a tall man with a long brown beard and a tall black hat which hid his face. Harker recalls only being able to see bright gleaming eyes that appeared almost red in the lamplights. The man turned his face to the coach and smiled, remarking that he was early tonight. With help from the driver, Harker climbed into the carriage and they rode into the darkness. The darkness was broken when the moon peered out from the thick clouds. Staring at the moon, Harker began to panic all of a sudden when he noticed a pack of shaggy-looking wolves surrounding the carriage. He called out to the driver, who stood up and with one sweeping motion of his arm almost signalled to the wolves to leave. Slowly they backed off until the carriage rode past them. The moon was once again engulfed by the clouds and the darkness returned. 
Eventually, they arrive at the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, its tall black windows blocking even a single ray of sunshine from entering. The carriage came to a stop, and before Mr. Harker was a pale old man who invited him into his home. He noted that the man's touch was cold, closer to that of the dead than the living. Harker establishes that this man is Dracula. He shows Harker to his room and offers him supper. The Count doesn't join Harker, claiming that he had already eaten. After dinner, he smokes a cigar given to him by his host and observes Dracula. He finds the Count's appearance to be rather strange. A pale old man with wild bushy hair, pointed ears, a slender nose with overarching nostrils, a thin moustache he described as evil, but what caught his eye in particular were the sharp teeth that protruded over his lips, which were a vibrant red, not common for someone of his age. His hands were also strange, hair located on his palms, and long nails sharpened to a point. His touch caused Harker to shudder, his breath was rank and caused his guests to feel nauseous. The Count, realising Harker's discomfort, retreated, and told him to sleep in as late as he desired, as he would be away until the afternoon. 7th May. Exploring the castle, Harker begins to notice more oddities. Despite the surroundings suggesting the Count's wealth, there is not a single room with a mirror or even a piece of glass where one's reflection can be seen. There are no servants, and Harker has seen or heard nothing around the castle grounds other than the howling of wolves. Dracula explains that his love for England and desire to walk the streets of London came from his collection of books. Together they sit down and discuss the details of the estate that he will be purchasing on the Count's behalf. He is intrigued as to how Mr. Harker was able to find such a perfect match for him. The estate is called Carfax and has a large house on the grounds that is reminiscent of a medieval keep. It's fairly secluded, with only a chapel and a newly built insane asylum nearby, neither of which were visible from the grounds. The Count is pleased that the house is of an old design, as he himself is from an old family. 8th May. Homesickness overcomes Harker. The Count's castle brings him an uneasy feeling, and he begins to wish that he never came to this place. Harker hung his shaving glass on the window and began to shave. Good morning. Startled by the Count's greeting, he had cut himself. When he looked back at his shaving glass to look at his cut, there was no reflection of the man just over his shoulder. The blood from the cut ran down his neck, and before he could wipe it away, he saw the Count's demeanour change. An uncontrollable fury had come over him as he reached for Harker's neck. As Harker pulled away, the Count's hand brushed against the crucifix around his neck, and the almost possessed trance the Count was in quickly disappeared. The Count warns him to take care, as cutting himself in this country is more dangerous than he can imagine. He took the shaving glass and threw it out the window, blaming the man-made mirror for Harker's accident before retreating without a word. After breakfast, Harker explored the castle some more. He began to realise that almost every door was bolted shut. The only way out was through a window, and thus he believes this castle is a prison, and he is the prisoner. 9th May, Midnight. 
In an attempt to learn more of this country, Harker asks the Count about Transylvanian history. The Count describes the battles in great detail, almost as if he was there. He took pride in describing the Dracula bloodline as great heroes with accolades that none of the other families could boast. 16th May. Harker questions whether he has lost his sanity, praying to God to save him before it's too late. The prior night, a sleepless Harker roamed the castle, and when looking out of a window, he saw the Count's head peering out of another window. He was lost for words when the Count climbed out of the window and began to crawl down the castle walls head first. No man could do this. At this point, Harker was convinced that the Count must be a creature in the form of a man. Watching him leave the grounds now was his chance to explore more than he had ever dared. With his lamp, he frantically checked all the doors, but they were locked as expected. At the end of a stairway, he found a door that, although locked, he was able to push open when applying pressure. This area of the castle seemed more modern than the rest, and Harker found it comforting enough to sit down and recount the events thus far in his journal. Harker fell asleep in this room, and when he woke, across from him were three young ladies in dresses. Despite the moonlight shining behind them, they cast no shadow on the floor. They approached and stared at Harker for some time before whispering amongst each other. Two of the women had dark hair, a nose that resembled the Count, and eyes that were red. The other woman was slightly paler, with flowing gold locks of hair and eyes that resembled pale sapphires. The pale woman resembled someone Harker knew or had seen before. He wasn't quite sure where or how. It all felt like a dream. They began to laugh and encouraged the blonde woman to step forward. You go first and we shall follow, they said. This one is young and strong. There are kisses for us all. The blonde woman leant in and her teeth pressed against Harker's neck. Before she could sink them in, Harker opened his eyes and felt the presence of the Count his eyes as red as before. He grabbed the woman by her neck and flung her across the room. The Count was furious. With his arm, he motioned them back as the driver had done with the wolves. How dare you touch him? How dare you lay eyes upon him when I had forbidden it? He growled. This man belongs to me. I promise you when I am done with him, you may kiss him at your will. Are we to have nothing tonight? they asked the Count. He responded by pointing at a bag that he had thrown on the floor, a bag that twitched as if it contained a small living being. One of the women opened the bag and smiled. Harker heard what he believed to have been the moaning of a newborn child. The three women surrounded the bag and Harker looked away for a brief second. When he turned back, they disappeared with the bag. He thought he saw the remnants of their ghostly shape outside of the window. The shock and horror of what had just happened was too much for Harker. He slumped back into his chair and passed out. 19th May. The Count asked Mr. Harker to write three letters. One stating that his business with the Count was almost concluded and he will begin his journey home in a few days. The second the following morning stating that he had left. The third letter stating that he had left the castle and arrived safely in Bistritz. He asked the Count what dates he should use for the letters. The first should be June 12, the second June 19, and the third June 29. 
To Harker, the answer the Count gave signalled to him how long he would have left before the Count would end his life. 17th June. On this morning, Harker heard two wagons enter the castle grounds. Despite his best efforts, they ignored his calls for help and refused to even look in his direction. The drivers were busy unloading large crates with rope handles. He guessed the boxes were empty, judging by how easy they were being handled. 21st June. The prior night, the Count had locked himself in his chamber. Harker could hear the cries of a woman pleading with the Count to give her back her child. He could not see the woman, but he could hear the beating of her hands on the door. From high above, the Count called out in a harsh whisper, and this was soon met by the howling of wolves. Soon the woman was surrounded by them, however there were no screams from her, almost as if she had accepted her fate. Harker did not witness her demise, but he saw the wolves leaving the courtyard licking their lips. 29th June. This is the day Harker believed to be his last. He had to try and escape. On the south side of the castle, he climbed out of a window and made his way along the ledge to the Count's room. He opened the window and to his surprise he slid into what was an empty room. There was a large door that opened to a stone passage, leading to a circular stairway that went down. Here Harker found an old chapel that was once used as a graveyard. The earth here had been dug up and placed into boxes similar to those that were delivered earlier. In one of those boxes, laying on the newly dug earth, was the Count, eyes wide open. Harker could not tell if he was asleep or dead. There was no pulse or breathing. However, his appearance was not what Harker had become accustomed to. The white hair and moustache were now dark grey. His skin was more red than pale and his cheeks seemed fuller. His mouth also had more colour, with fresh blood still on his lips trickling down his chin and neck. Harker felt the overwhelming desire to rid the world of this terrible monster. He took a shovel the workman had used to fill the boxes, lifted it above his head, and then plunged it down at the Count's face. As he did, the Count's eyes opened and his head turned. His attempt to kill the Count failed as he missed, falling over and dropping the shovel. He could hear the songs of the workmen returning and so he fled to the Count's room. He could hear the boxes being nailed down and moved, most likely being transported onto the wagons which he could also hear leaving the courtyard. He was now alone in the castle with the three women from before. He planned to once again scale the castle and find a way out of this cursed place. The fall is steep and would surely kill him if he fell, but Harker would rather the mercy of God than to remain in this hell. He ends this journal entry by saying goodbye all. 24th July, Whitby. It's at this point in the narrative we swap to the journal of Mina Murray, the woman who is engaged to Jonathan Harker. Mina meets with her friend Lucy and they discuss Lucy's upcoming marriage. From having no interest shown in her, Lucy had three men propose to her on the same day, Arthur Homewood, Quincy Morris, and John Seward. All three men were good friends, and Lucy accepted the proposal of Arthur. This turns Mina's mind to Jonathan, whom she hadn't heard from in a month. 8th August 
There was a terrible storm that night. Lucy, who would occasionally sleepwalk, had done so several times, and Mina had put her back to bed. In the morning, Mina had heard news of a boat that was wrecked at the harbour, a Russian ship named the Demeter. When the boat reached the shore, a large dog leapt from below and ran across the harbour. The boat was not particularly large, with only a small amount of cargo, great wooden boxes filled with mould. On board, they had found a dead man tied to the helm of the ship holding a crucifix in possession of a bottle. Inside of the bottle was the Demeter's log, detailing the journey from Varna to Whitby. Written July 18th. Things so strange are happening that I shall keep accurate notes henceforth until we land. The journey started on July 6th when the boxes of dirt were loaded onto the ship. The crew was made up of five hands, two mates, a cook, and the captain himself who wrote the log. The first week of their journey was uneventful with a few customs checks regarding their cargo. July 13th is when the captain first notes the crew dissatisfied about something, but appeared too scared to speak out. July 16th, the first crewmate, Petrovsky, had gone missing. The captain had sailed with these men many times and had never seen them this down. However, they would not voice their concern. The only thing the captain and his first mates could gather was that they felt something was on board. July 17th, one of the men, Olgarin, came to the captain's cabin to confide in him. He had seen a strange man aboard, a tall, thin man that did not match the appearance of any of the crew. He attempted to follow the man, but he just disappeared into thin air, which confused and scared Olgarin. July 14th. Another man had disappeared. He had finished his watch and was never seen again. The crew asked to have a double watch instead of a single so they could feel safe in numbers. July 29th. There was only a single watch that evening as the crew were too tired for a double. When morning came, the watch found no one on deck other than the steerman, meaning another man had gone missing. July 30th. The ship is nearing England and the captain slept soundly, until he was woken with the news that the two men on watch and the steerman had all gone missing. Only the captain, his mate, and two crew remained. 2nd August. The captain was woken from a brief sleep by screams. On deck they found nobody. Another man had been taken. 3rd August. The captain had to relieve the man at wheel but found no one. He called for his first mate who rushed to the deck. It was only them remaining. His first mate came close and whispered, It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night, I saw it, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bows and looking out. I crept behind it and gave it my knife, but the knife went through it, empty as the air. But it is here, and I'll find it. It is in the hold, perhaps in one of the boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. The captain could only assume his first mate had gone mad. He could hear him knocking around below, searching the boxes. All of a sudden, he made his way to the dock, screaming, wide-eyed and full of fear. Save me! Save me! He cried. You had better come too, Captain, before it's too late. He is here. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and that is all that is left. Before the Captain could move, his first mate threw himself into the sea. 
The captain believed his first mate had gone mad and so he must have been responsible for the other men. At least now he had joined them. August 4th. The captain too scared to go below remained at the helm. It was here he finally saw the man. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a man, to die like a sailor in the blue water, no man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. I shall baffle the fiend or monster. I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail, and along with them I shall tie that which he, it does not dare to touch. And then come good, wind or foul, I shall save my soul and honour as captain. The captain placed his log in a bottle so it may be found if the ship was wrecked. The authorities found no evidence and could not confirm the captain's story. The locals saw the captain as a hero deserving of a public funeral. Tomorrow we'll see the funeral, and so we'll end this one more mystery of the sea. 11th August, 3am. Unable to sleep, Mina notices that Lucy was not in her bed and so she began looking for her. Looking across the pier, she saw a figure in white in the distance that she thought must have been Lucy. There was a dark figure behind her. Mina could not work out if this was a man or a creature, and so she made her way over with haste. She called out to Lucy, but she did not answer. A face did turn towards her, one with gleaming red eyes. Mina lost sight of Lucy as she ran through the chapel between them. When she found Lucy, she was still sleeping, but she was breathing heavily. Mina took Lucy and rushed home. There was no sight of the dark figure that she had seen earlier. 19th August. Mina had received a letter on behalf of Jonathan from a hospital in Budapest. The letter was from a sister Agatha and stated that Mr. Harker had been in their care for six weeks suffering from a violent brain fever. The letter talks of Jonathan's delirium, ranting about ghosts and wolves, demons, blood and poison. Jonathan's employer, Mr. Hawkins, had suggested that she meet Jonathan in Budapest to nurse him back to health, perhaps even to marry him. The next journal entry comes from a Dr. Seward, the administrator of the insane asylum next to Carfax, Dracula's new home. 10th August. Dr. Seward had proposed to Lucy, but she turned him down for someone else, and so he turned his focus to his work. He had picked out a patient that he found so strange and unlike the normal lunatic that he was determined to try and understand him. The patient was called R.M. Renfield. He was of sanguine temperament, which describes someone who is enthusiastic and over-talkative. He was of great physical strength and went through bouts of morbid excitement followed by periods of gloom. 19th August. Dr. Seward noticed a sudden change in Renfield the prior evening. The night watchman had alerted him that Renfield had escaped. Seward could see Renfield scaling the wall that separated the asylum and Carfax estate. He instructed the night watchman to send for three or four men to help restrain Renfield. He then climbed over the wall himself and gave chase into Carfax. He found Renfield outside of the old chapel whispering to himself, I am here to do your bidding, master. I am your slave and you shall reward me. They managed to restrain Renfield, who struggled at first, but all of a sudden was completely calm. 
Seward looked around to see what could have caused this change, but could only see Renfield staring up at the moon, focused on a bat flapping its wings in the distance. Renfield was calm enough now that he went willingly back to the asylum, but Seward found this change in demeanour slightly concerning. 31st August Arthur writes to Dr. Seward informing him that Lucy is unwell, and he would appreciate if he attended her. Arthur was summoned to see his father, who himself was very sick. 2nd September. Dr. Seward writes to Arthur letting him know that he cannot quite diagnose Lucy. He believes the condition to be mental, trouble breathing and dreams which frighten her, dreams that she cannot remember. Dr. Seward reached out to his old professor in Amsterdam, Dr. Van Helsing, an expert in strange and obscure diseases. 7th September When Dr. Seward explained Lucy's symptoms to Dr. Van Helsing, he looked alarmed but said nothing. This time when Dr. Seward saw Lucy, she looked even worse. She was ghastly pale, she had lost all colour in her lips and cheeks, the bones in her face were extremely visible, and she struggled to breathe. After examining Lucy, Van Helsing identified that without a blood transfusion, she would die very soon due to loss of blood. One of them would have to volunteer, and as Dr. Seward was much younger, he offered his blood to save Lucy. Arthur soon arrived to meet the two men, having received the letters deeply concerned for his fiancée. Willing to do anything, he offered his blood. Van Helsing gave Lucy a narcotic to put her to sleep and began the operation. As Arthur grew weaker, Lucy's colour was restored. The transfusion was a success. Tending to Lucy, Professor Van Helsing noticed a red mark around her neck. Over her jugular vein, there were two small punctures. Dr. Seward could not give his professor an answer as to what these marks were, but Van Helsing seemed to have an idea. Dr. Seward was to remain and watch over Lucy all night. Professor Van Helsing was to return to Amsterdam and retrieve books and items he required. When he returned, they would begin. But begin what exactly, he did not say. 12th September Dr. Seward recounts an incident where Renfield broke out of his room and made his way to Carfax Abbey once again. This time he came across a cart carrying large wooden boxes. He attacked one of the men driving the cart, but Dr. Seward was able to intervene. If he hadn't done so, he had no doubt Renfield could have killed the man. 18th September Dr. Seward and Professor Van Helsing arrived at Lucy's estate and entered her room, where they found both Lucy and her mother laying on her bed, both pale and motionless. They rushed Lucy into another room, and Van Helsing was adamant that it wasn't too late for Lucy, but they would have to perform another transfusion. Luckily, Quincy Morris was there to volunteer. With his transfusion, Lucy's symptoms began to improve, for the time being. On Lucy, the professor had found a note that he gave to Dr. Seward. Memorandum left by Lucy Westenra, September 17th. In this note, Lucy recounts the events that transpired after the night she was saved by Mina when sleepwalking. She recalls hearing howling outside of her bedroom window. When she went to check, she saw nothing more than a large bat knocking against her window. Her mother came to check if she was alright and laid in bed with her. The howling continued, as did the knocking of the bat. 
All of a sudden there was a loud crash and glass from the window shattered all over the floor. Behind the window was the head of a large grey wolf. Her mother took the wreath of flowers that Professor Van Helsing insisted Lucy wore around her neck. She pointed at the wolf before falling over. Lucy had no idea what had happened to her mother. It was almost as if she was struck by lightning. Her attempts to wake her were in vain as she must have lost consciousness, unable to remember anything else. When she woke, she could still hear the wolves howling. However, this time it was accompanied by the howls of the neighbouring dogs. Lucy ends the note by saying goodbye to Arthur, not expecting to survive the night. After reading the note, Dr. Seward was more confused than ever, looking to Professor Van Helsing for answers. Had Lucy gone completely insane, or was she truly in some kind of terrible danger? 19th September Professor Van Helsing and Dr. Seward, when examining Lucy, noticed that the wounds on her neck had completely disappeared. Professor Van Helsing told Dr. Seward that it was time for Arthur to see his fiancée's face one final time, as it was clear their attempts had failed and she was dying. Observing this interaction, they noticed Lucy's teeth appeared longer and sharper, her voice less frail and more seductive as she asked Arthur to kiss her. Dr. Seward, taken aback by this sudden change, could only watch on as Professor Van Helsing hurled himself forward and grabbed Arthur. Not for your life, not for your living soul and hers, he screamed as he pulled Arthur away. After a brief spasm of rage, she returned to the Lucy of old. She took Van Helsing's hand and asked him to look over Arthur, to which he gave his word. Arthur gave Lucy one final kiss on her forehead and her breathing stopped. It is all over. She is dead, Van Helsing confirmed. Arthur left the room and Dr. Seward turned to the professor. At least it is over. She can rest. This is the end. The professor with a grim look on his face shook his head. No, I am afraid not. This is only the beginning. Dr. Seward asked him what he meant, but the professor's answer was that they could do nothing as of right now. They would have to wait and see. Mina Harker's Journal, 22nd September. Jonathan's recovery was slow, and Mina had just heard news of Lucy and her mother's death from Professor Van Helsing. They had both already been buried, and Van Helsing would make his way to Mina in the coming days. 27th September, Dr. Seward's Diary. Professor Van Helsing presented Dr. Seward with a newspaper article about children and small puncture wounds similar to that of Lucy. He asked Dr. Seward if he thought the person responsible for Lucy's wounds was also responsible for what had happened to those children. Dr. Seward thought it was most definitely a possibility, but like so many of the questions the professor asked, he already knew the answer. When Professor Van Helsing revealed that the puncture wounds on the children were in fact made by Lucy, Dr. Seward was stunned. The professor could see Dr. Seward was still apprehensive, and so tomorrow evening he would prove it to him along with Arthur and Quincy Morris. 29th September morning. The night prior, just before 10 o'clock, Van Helsing explained to the three men what must be done. He asked Arthur for his permission to act as he feels best. He asked them to accompany him to the churchyard where Lucy was buried. There they would enter the tomb. Arthur understandably struggled with what was being requested, but managed to compose himself. 
when they were inside the tomb, they would open the coffin to examine whether she was undead. Arthur mistook this to mean that there was a chance Lucy was buried alive, but Professor Van Helsing reiterated that he did not say Lucy was alive, but there still was a chance that she was undead. This was not something the professor wanted to do, but he would need Arthur with him and with a clear mind. Struggling to understand, he accepted the professor's proposal. They would arrive at the churchyard just before a quarter to twelve, and the professor began searching for Lucy's coffin. He unscrewed the lid, and with a tiny saw began to cut through the lead beneath. The professor continued, and when he was through the lead, he opened the coffin and all three men were shocked when they saw that the coffin was empty. Professor Van Helsing ordered everyone outside and closed the door to the tomb behind him. He then placed a seal outside of the tomb so the undead may not enter. All four then waited outside of the tomb for some time before seeing a figure in white. They could not see her face, but it was a dark-haired woman dressed in what looked like funeral garb. The figure was bent down over a child. A small cry could be heard and all three men prepared to intervene. The professor gestured for them to stay where they were as the figure came closer, close enough for them to recognize the figure as Lucy. Professor Van Helsing took a step forward, his lantern revealing Lucy's lips covered in fresh blood. The figure before them was Lucy in appearance only. Her warm and friendly demeanor was cold-blooded and lifeless, her eyes filled with fiery rage. She snarled at the men who approached her, threw the child to the ground and approached Arthur with outstretched arms. With his face hidden in his hands, Arthur did his best to ignore her call. Come, my husband, and we shall rest together. Arthur appeared to be under a spell. With open hands, he made his way towards her. Van Helsing placed himself between the two and held up his golden crucifix, causing Lucy to recoil at the mere sight. She made her way to the tomb, but the seal worked and she could not enter. She turned around and found herself trapped between the seal and Van Helsing's crucifix. The professor called out to Arthur, Answer me, my friend. Am I to proceed in my work? Arthur falling to his knees, covering his face again, instructed the professor to do as he willed. The professor removed the seal from the tomb, and somehow Lucy was able to slide through a gap that no corporal body should have been able to. Professor Van Helsing unlocked the door to the tomb and was followed in by all three men. This time, when they took off the lid to Lucy's coffin, they saw her body. Arthur began to acknowledge that this was not his beloved Lucy. Professor Van Helsing opened his bag and removed the tools he would need, Dr. Seward noticing a stake and hammer, among many other things. He explained to the men that the undead could not die. They were to live for eternity, and all those who fell victim to them would also become undead. The professor recommended that it should be Arthur to set Lucy free. He was to place a stake over her heart and strike with the hammer once the prayer to the dead was complete. The professor began to read, and when the time was right, Arthur lifted the hammer and struck down, piercing Lucy's heart with the stake. Lucy sat up and began to writhe in pain, biting down on her lips as blood spattered from the heart. Arthur did not falter, and after a brief struggle, the figure stopped and fell back into the coffin. 
When they looked down, they saw the Lucy they had known, not the distorted abomination she had become. Arthur kissed her goodbye one more time and left the tomb with Quincy. The Professor and Dr. Seward, however, still had work to do. They left the stake in the body and cut off the head, filling it with garlic before closing the coffin and soldering the lid shut. They returned to the Barclay Hotel, where a telegram was waiting for the Professor. It was from Mina. She had important news and was on a train home accompanied by Jonathan. 30th September. Mina and Jonathan returned to London, and together using all of Jonathan's diary entries, they pieced together the information regarding the boxes that had been transported to Carfax. Dr. Seward, surprised that the house Dracula had purchased was the one right next to his very own asylum, relayed this information to Professor Van Helsing. The professor confirmed the existence of vampires, making it known the one on their doorstep is extremely powerful. He has the strength of twenty men. He can speak with the dead. He can take many forms from animal to mist. He can control the weather, and is more cunning than any man they have encountered before. Despite a list that describes Dracula as all-powerful, he does have limitations. He cannot enter a household unless he has been invited in. He can only cross running water at the lowest point of the tide. His power is endless in the night, but at the coming of day, it is very limited. Certain things can render him powerless, such as garlic and the crucifix. It is the blood of the living that sustains him. If they confine him to his coffin, then maybe they can stop him. The first task was to discover how many of the boxes that had been transported remained in Carfax, a task deemed too dangerous for Mina. She would remain safe while the rest of the men entered the estate. Dr. Seward's Diary, 1st October Last night, they made their way to Carfax using the shadows of the trees to remain undetected. The professor using a skeleton key was able to open the front door. October 2nd. It was agreed that Dr. Seward would visit Thomas Snelling, the man who Renfield attacked transporting the boxes. At his home, Mr. Snelling told Dr. Seward he had made two journeys from Carfax and a house in Piccadilly. He had taken 21 boxes from Carfax to this other house. After a small payment, he provided the address to the house in Piccadilly. The professor was pleased with Dr. Seward's work. He made it clear that before they attempt to kill the Count, they must locate all of the boxes that came from Transylvania. October 3rd. Dr. Seward was alerted that there had been an accident involving Renfield. He found him lying in a pool of his own blood. When Dr. Seward and Professor Van Helsing examined Renfield, he told them that he had had a terrible dream. Renfield acknowledges that he is dying, and what he experienced may have been reality and not a dream. Before he died, he wished to tell Dr. Seward something to ease his burden. At his window, he saw Dracula, but this time it felt less like a dream, like the Count was actually there, and so Renfield invited him in. Without noticing, Renfield continued mumbling and revealed that the Count had been feeding on Mina Harker. They hurried to the Harker's residence and burst into their bedroom, where Jonathan lay on the bed in distress, and standing at the foot of the bed was his wife, Mina, and a skinny stranger dressed in black. 
When they saw his face, they all immediately knew the stranger was indeed the Count, who had one hand gripped tightly around both of Mina's hands, and the other hand wrapped around her neck, forcing her to feed from him. When he noticed them burst into the room, he threw Mina against the bed and pounced on the men before him. Professor Van Helsing had with him the sacred wafer. The Count halted and cowered at the sight of it, slowly moving backwards. With their crucifixes held aloft, the men continued walking towards the Count. The moon was covered in dark clouds, and with this the Count vanished into thick vapour. Mina let out a blood-curdling scream which woke Jonathan. Seeing the blood trickle down her mouth, he turned to Dr. Seward and Professor Van Helsing for answers. The Professor turned to Mina and asked her to explain what had happened. Mina woke and could feel the presence of someone. When she turned to Jonathan, she could not wake him regardless of how hard she tried. Turning back, there was a man all dressed in black with glowing red eyes standing beside her bed. She described him as almost appearing from the mist. Given the description she had heard from others, she knew this must have been the Count. On his forehead was a red scar where Jonathan had struck him. Pointing at Jonathan, the Count spoke to Mina. Silence! If you make a sound, I shall take him and dash his brains out before your very eyes. Mina Helpless could only listen as the Count placed one hand on her shoulder and revealed her neck with the other. First, a little refreshment to reward my exertions he said with a grin, before telling Mina it wasn't the first time or the second that her veins had appeased his thirst. He placed his lips on her throat and began to drink. As he did, she felt her strength fading away. Mina had lost her sense of time, but felt that there must have been a significant amount that passed before the Count spoke again. The Count expressed his annoyance that she would help these men in their plan to stop him. She would have to be punished. Whenever the Count called to her, she would cross land or sea to do his bidding. The Count opened his shirt, and with his long sharp nails he opened a vein in his chest. When the blood began to spurt out, he took her by the neck and pressed her face against his chest, leaving her no choice but to swallow the blood or suffocate. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 3rd October. In the morning, the men convened where they discussed destroying the Count's lair. Before leaving, Professor Van Helsing took the sacred wafer he had used to repel Dracula and planned on using it to protect Mina. As he began his blessing, it was cut short when Mina screamed. The wafer seared the flesh on her forehead. Mina took this to mean she was now sullied and unclean. She was becoming more and more like the Count. The newly formed scar was proof that God had forsaken her. Professor Van Helsing comforted Mina. There was still hope that they may see the day when the red scar left from the wafer would disappear. Jonathan kissed his fiancée, and the men left for Carfax. They entered Carfax without any resistance. The professor opened one of the boxes and placed the sacred wafer on the soil, before closing the box, ensuring to leave no evidence that it had been tampered with. They followed Van Helsing's lead, making sure the boxes were left as they were found. With the success at Carfax, there was still hope for Mina, as long as they were able to place the wafer in the other boxes at the house in Piccadilly. When they entered the house at Piccadilly, the stench was just as bad as Carfax, and it was clear the Count had been using this house freely. 
In the dining room, they found 20 boxes of Earth. They were expecting 21, and so they now had a new problem. All of this was meaningless if they could not locate the last missing box. They treated the boxes in the dining room just as they did the ones back at Carfax. As the Count did not already appear to be in the house, they decided to wait for his return. Late in the afternoon, they heard a key opening the door. They waited, but the footsteps were slow. The Count must have either known that they were there, or he was fearful of the possibility. Without warning, the Count leapt past them before they could even react. He bared his teeth and snarled. Jonathan took his knife and made a lunge towards the Count. Any normal man would have been impaled, but the Count was too quick and was able to leap backwards. Jonathan had only managed to cut his pocket, from which some banknotes and gold fell to the floor. The Count scooped up what he could and threw himself towards the window. He crashed through the window and landed below unharmed. He ran towards the stable and turned back to Jonathan and the other men. Before leaving, he told them that their women were his and they would do his bidding. The Count had escaped and Jonathan returned to Mina. During the night, Mina woke Jonathan requesting that he call Professor Van Helsing as she had to speak with him urgently. A few minutes later, everyone was summoned and the professor was in the room still in his nightgown. Mina's plan was for the professor to hypnotize her so she could speak freely without the Count's influence. Perhaps they could use the connection between the Count and Mina to find the location of the last box. Professor Van Helsing was successful and began to ask Mina questions. She did not know where she was. She could only see darkness, but could hear the lapping of water. The professor was able to deduce that she was describing being on a ship of some kind. Unfortunately, that was all the information Van Helsing was able to retrieve before sending Mina back to sleep. When Mina woke, the professor explained after the Count's close encounter with them, he must have fled to a ship with the hopes of escaping back to his home with his last box. October 5th, 5pm. When they reconvened, the professor had already located the ship that the Count planned to use. As the Count would naturally return to Transylvania, the ship must have been bound for the Black Sea. This narrowed the search down to one. The ship had already left the Thames the prior morning. To complete the journey would take three weeks, even at the fastest speed. They could make the same journey on land within three days. This would allow them more than enough time to arm themselves and prepare their plan of attack. Dr. Seward's Diary, 15th October. Using the Orient Express, they arrived at their destination and began the wait for the Count's ship to dock. A week of waiting and there was nothing to show. The professor feared that the Count might just be escaping them. 28th October. Finally, there was news of the Count's ship arriving. However, it was arriving in a different location, just as Van Helsing had used Mina to gather information on the Count's plan. The Count had also used Mina to learn of their plan and make the necessary changes to evade them. 30th October. They had tracked down the ship and spoke to the captain. He had been paid to deliver the boxes before sunrise in order to avoid customs. He gave the box to a Petrov Skinsky, who dealt with the Slovaks who traded down at the port. That was all the captain knew. With that information, they returned to Mina frustrated. 
The box was traveling somewhere by water, but they had no idea where. Mina Harker's Journal, 30th October. Mina was able to examine the map she was given and found the route that traveled through the Borgio Pass and as close to Dracula's castle as possible. Jonathan and the Professor were thrilled that there was hope again, now that the Count believed he had thrown them off his trail. Arthur was to follow the Count with a steamboat. Mr. Morris was to follow from behind with horses just in case he tried to land. Professor Van Helsing was concerned about Petrov as he would surely be armed, but the men themselves were in possession of a small arsenal. Mina was to remain with the Professor who would watch over her. They would instead travel to Dracula's castle whilst he was occupied. Jonathan, given his past experience in Dracula's castle, was not pleased with the Professor's plan, but he was adamant that this was the only way to save Mina. November 1st. The Professor and Mina travelled by carriage to Dracula's castle. Hypnotising Mina once again, he was able to confirm that Dracula was still on the water. November 5th. Van Helsing and Mina were close to the castle. As they set up camp for the night, the Professor drew a ring around Mina, sprinkling the sacred wafer to protect her. All of a sudden, three women appeared from a bright white light. The women were dressed in long, flowing gowns. Looking at their teeth and voluptuous red lips, the Professor knew that these were the same three women Jonathan had described to him. The women laughed and called out to Mina, Come sister, come join us. Mina was not yet one of their kind. She resisted their calls and the Professor's hope that her soul could still be saved only grew. As the sun began to rise, Van Helsing recalls the horrid figures melting in the mist and snow. Van Helsing left Mina resting in the circle and made his way to the castle. Jonathan's description allowed the professor to find the chapel with ease and begin his work. Having seen the three women, he searched for their graves. Van Helsing found the first, but he also found himself being slowly overcome with fascination, the vampire allure that he described as taking the lives of so many. With a gust of wind came a low scream from Mina, who woke the professor from this spell. He continued on and found the graves of all three sisters. There was one more grave, larger and more noble looking than the others. Engraved on it was one word, Dracula. He placed some of the wafer in Dracula's tomb and turned his focus to the women to begin his terrible task. He struggled with the act he described as butchery, the screams of one vampire he could handle, but three may have been too far for even him. The thought of freeing their souls and allowing them to finally rest gave him the strength he needed to free all three women just as he had done with Lucy. With his task complete and Dracula now unable to return to his tomb, Van Helsing returned to Mina and they both set off eastwards to meet their friends. Before reuniting with their companions, Van Helsing and Mina spotted a group of carts being driven by what Mina described as gypsies or peasants. With them was Dracula's crate. The gypsies were riding at breakneck speed. They were racing against the sunset. Behind them, Van Helsing saw two men on horses giving chase, Jonathan and Arthur. The Professor readied his rifle and Mina her revolver. The howling of wolves could be heard from all sides. 
Surrounded on all sides, Jonathan called the gypsies to halt. The leader gave his men the word and they drew their weapons. Quincy and Dr. Seward joined Jonathan and Arthur as they leapt from their horses and went straight for Dracula's cart. Neither the pistols and knives raised by the gypsies or the howling of wolves were enough to distract them from their mission. Jonathan made his way through unharmed. Quincy, however, parried away the knives being lunged in his direction, but one must have found its way through. Together, Jonathan and Quincy were able to pry open the lid of the crate. The gypsies had all but given up as they were surrounded and offered no more resistance. The Count lay in his crate, waiting for the sun to set. He would soon be at full strength. Jonathan slashed at the Count's throat, and Quincy plunged his bowie knife into his heart. Before their eyes, the Count's entire body crumbled into dust and disappeared. The gypsies rode off and were followed by the wolves. Now alone, Mina and Van Helsing rushed to their friends. Quincy remained upbeat despite knowing that he would die from the knife wound. Before the sun set, its rays illuminated Mina's face and they could see the colour had been restored. Quincy was happy that he could have been of service and his death was worth being able to lift the curse from Mina. Note from Jonathan Harker. Jonathan recounts the events that had happened seven years ago. The happiness was worth the pain they had to endure. Jonathan and Mina had a son who was born on the same day that Quincy Morris died. Mina believed that some part of Quincy's soul is with their son, and so he was named after their brave friend. Dr. Seward and Arthur were both happily married and had started families of their own. The book ends with Jonathan stating that no one would ever believe their wild story. Van Helsing comforts them by saying it doesn't matter that they have no proof and that no one would believe them. One day their son will grow up and know what a brave and gallant woman his mother is, and he will understand why so many risked everything to save her.